Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about the reshuffle. Woohoo! We talk about the NHS crisis. And I interview playwright David Eldridge, whose new play Beginning starts in the West End soon. So let's talk about the reshuffle, Stephen. I'm struggling really to pull the headlines out of it because it sort of feels that you know Boris Johnson stayed in place, Amber Rudd stayed in place, Philip Hammond stayed in place. The highest highlight, if you will, is that Justin Greening got hoofed out of education after refusing a move to the DWP quite sensibly. She's got a seat in London in Putney with a very small majority. Um, and why would you push through another incredibly unpopular flagship reform? David Liddington, formerly at Justice, is kind of now taken on the, some of the Damien Green roles in terms of First Secretary of State. He will also deputise for Theresa May at PMQs. And he's replaced by David Gork. Who is no one hates David Cork, and, and is also like crucially, you know, a lawyer. People are quite excited about that. The first lawyer in in a little over five years to hold the post. One of the things which I think is suboptimal about the various Conservative-led governments since 2010 is the lack of importance that they have given to that post. Well, I hadn't realised... Do you mean Lord Chancellor? Lord Chancellor. But I hadn't realised just how stark it was in terms of personnel changes. They've had six. Six, Ken Clark, Chris Grayling. Gove. Michael Liz Gove, Truss. Liz Truss, David Gork. David Liddington. And, and David, David Liddington, yeah. right? So they've had six. To put that in perspective, to get an equivalent number, you have to go from 2010 to 1987. Blair obviously did, I would argue, considerably more reshuffles than he ought to do. They didn't give ministers long enough to bed in. That is kind of the overwhelming impression of both civil servants and new Labour ministers. And I think even Blair himself may have now conceded that they they made changes too often. That's interesting because uh, I didn't. But he didn't change the Lord Justice that much. He changed it twice because one, Jack Straw one, had it for a long time, didn't it? When yeah. They, so yeah. there were three new Labour chancellors. Uh, Lord Irvin of Leg, Derry Irvin. Apparently, I've just changed our style guide to not be a Republican style guide anymore. Charlie Faulkner and Jack Straw. I think it's reflective of weakness in government because what David Cameron had to do was try and kind of make a kind of mosaic across government with putting Lib Dems in particular ministries and ensuring that there was always a you know having Danny Alexander in the Treasury as number two, George Osborne, so on. So he had a kind of difficult um, you know numbers game. Theresa May now has that, but with Brexiteers and Remainers, added to it, you know, the other complication, she tried, I mean, they tried to brief this as the kind of increased diversity reshuffle, which led to the inevitable Daily Mail front page about the massacre of the middle-aged men. But her options are quite limited. I mean, that's the, that is the... 
I, that is the problem. I think something, isn't it like the Tory party, something like these aren't quite the right figures, but Tory party's got 14 black and minority ethnic MPs and 11 of them now have not, you know, posts outside oh, no, of the back they, have, they must have more than that now. Because I, I, I think I did work out the other day, you can basically fill the cabinet with only, I mean, it would be ideolo- it would be even more ideologically incoherent than the the current cabinet, but you, you could do it. Um, It'd be kind of weirdly Thatcherite, wouldn't it? But also with like a couple of really quite wet tour. I mean, it actually would be exactly like Thatcher's cabinet because you'd have like diehard true believer Thatcherites and you'd have like some like quite posh one nationers who were like, I'm really not into this. Um, so it would be like the Thatcher cabinet. But, well, you know, I will go away and black. look at those. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a great, Thatcher, it's like, the new musical. I was going to say, it's yeah. very Hamilton, isn't it? Yeah. What if Thatcher's cabinet, but black? How does a grocer's <laughs> daughter suddenly turn a European backwater into a tree? Charter by she worked a lot harder by I did a whole version banging of banging down her handbag a lot harder something something by being not, a lot smarter than yeah. all the guys with the garters. Not all our musical episodes can work, okay? Some of them just have no, to be. No, mine was about well, how does a ragtag pamphleteer army somehow downgrade a global superpower? That was my version of the E referendum, but I won't treat you to Govan ships. Anyway, moving on from our musical interlude. I, I do think there is a there is a consistent problem, which is that people demand more representation, but you kind of have this problem that you know you you haven't if you haven't got taken the whole party with you then that's kind of difficult because your options are inevitably to be limited i think for example in labor at the moment because of the work that they've done in getting women mps on you could have an absolutely kick-ass all-female shadow cabinet like without even having to delve into weird ideological backwaters there are just enough good women who deserve a a, a kind of a cracker uh, around the, the table but it's i think it's that's harder in the tory party so i think this was quite a bad reshuffle and she had a lot more power and a lot more opportunities to... Well, no, so I think two things. I think if you share the thesis uh, that I would say is dominant at Westminster, I certainly hold it, most MPs I speak to hold it, which is that the Conservatives could win the next election. It's a big ask for them. It would be historically quite difficult. Everything does favour Labour, but the Tories could win the next election if they make the right choices as far as policy and the right choices as far as leadership are concerned. The second part of that thesis is that the options around the cabinet table that are not called Theresa May are not noticeably better. And then therefore what this reshuffle needed to do was provide some fresh options. Although there are lots of people who, you know, carry a torch for Dominic Raab, I just don't think the Tory party is going to make someone who hasn't been a Secretary of State leader. So I think really the leadership contender has to come from that table. Well, okay, so to, I I ran into Dominic Raab last summer where he and I both did the Sophie Ridge programme. And I had remembered him in his previous incarnation of, you know, feminists are ball-busting harpies. And he seemed to have softened significantly from that. But he's still, you know, I, I didn't see anything about him that said like, wow, awesome, charisma, clearly this uh, answer to all their problems. What is it that, that, that gets people going about Dominic Raab? So I, I don't get it either. TBH. A lot of MPs do think he's quite good. I have never seen it myself. That makes you worry it's a bit of a Theresa May thing where everybody kind of, it's a bit Emperor's New Clothes in that sense that everyone has kind of heard from someone else that he must be quite good and then never kind of investigated it themselves or been sceptical about it. I don't know, but a lot of the people who um, edited Britannia Unchained, you know, like the paper thing he did, Mm. they pretty much all privately, oh, Dominic Robb's great. So it's not it's not like the kind of Theresa May thing where the people who think he's great 
don't really know him. Mm. It's just that I don't really understand what it is they see. And I've never been like that good at asking the, well, why question in a way which doesn't put the other person's back up and actually gets you a meaningful answer. So I think if, if your thesis is the Conservatives need a change that is not currently available to them to win the next election, this was a bad reshuffle. However, there is no evidence and quite a lot of public evidence to the contrary that Theresa May shares that diagnosis. This reshuffle was quite a good one, allowing for the mishandling of, of, of Justine Greening, which was a, a bad mistake, which we'll talk about in a bit. But if you are Theresa May and you want to fight the next election, this was a very good reshuffle. You promoted some people who could replace you in a decade's time. Mm-hmm. Like There's a lot of quite interesting talent that they've managed to bring in in junior ministerial level. You have given jobs, in inverted commas, to new MPs who've been very good at making a name for themselves but have not betrayed a great deal of evidence that they can do anything yet and have got ministerial heft. But you have created a situation where you can now put up talented, ordinary-looking people like Kemi Badnock, Ben Bradley, the Sam other Deemer, one. Sam I always think is pretty, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but Sam, Sam Deemer is like, has actually been like a minister who, you know, you might disagree with him, but his civil servants don't think he's incompetent or loathsome. So he's moved um, from prisons to education. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's, that's one of the things I find is a sort of weird substrain of this is some just sort of random kind of musical chairs moves that don't seem to, they don't follow what anyone's, you know, massively interested in, or they don't seem to be kind of an obvious fit. They just seem to almost be kind of moving around for the sake of it. It, it was actually an awful lot like a Blair era reshuffle with two quite important exceptions, uh, which is that... It had that Blairia reshuffle thing of why are we doing this answer, it's the summer. Okay, so it wasn't summer. And you have a lot of people who are moving in order to move. We, we've decided to make a change. Your job changing is a change. Therefore, you will become a junior minister in a different department. The ways it was unlike a Blairia reshuffle, right, is one of the reasons... So reshuffles are always fraught because if people decide they don't want to move or if you fairly late in the day... Uh, to go back to Hamilton, extra... you know that line where it kind of goes, George Washington's giving his power up and going away. I wasn't aware that was a thing a person could do. I was not really aware that you were allowed to really until Ian Duncan Smith kerfuffle of a couple of years ago to go, you're being reshuffled and you go, no, I'm not. And then someone has to go, okay. I mean, I really did think it, I thought it was the prime minister, you really could just sack people. Well, you, the problem is you, you can sack, you can sack people if they, who don't want to go. What you can't do is move people who don't want to be moved. It's basically, I mean, it would actually make a really fun board game. No, cool it wouldn't. Cool sentence alert. <laughs> no, it because wouldn't. Because, yeah, one of the ingredients of, of, of a lot of good board games is a situation where you have limited cards, but the power of those cards can change radically depending on what either the dice or the chance cards or whatever the random element you add to your board game are. And you effectively have three cards you can play in a reshuffle. Keep move or sack and the power of any of those positions or in the case of jeremy hunt add a bit but yeah the power of those positions changes quite a bit oh no that's what the other those are the player the pieces the other player could for in the board game you one term you'd be the prime minister you'd be the minister and then you'd switch uh-huh. um but because the crucial thing is right is if um you want to fire me as like secretary of state for unnecessarily cumbersome analogies and you'd like to move me I to secretary move you to of the state department for, of bad metaphors for bad metaphors right and i go oh i don't want to move if you're happy to lose me from the government entirely, you can just go, okay, well then, go. 
If you don't want to play the sack card, if your majority is too small, if uh, you think I'll be too troublesome out on the back benches, you have to retain me. Now, one of the many reasons why the greening sacking does not make a whole lot of political sense is Justine Greening was someone who loved being Education Secretary, who's not into Brexit, and has a constituency which is also not into Brexit, where there are multiple reasons why she could lose it next time, but one way that she can maximise her chances of holding on to it is to be more loudly, vocally, and difficultly pro-European. Now... Added to which, let's be honest, because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm wearing seeing everything through a, a gender lens, but I do, I cannot understand why Justin Greening, who everybody in the sector thought was pretty decent, actually, you know, teachers can be pretty grump. I mean, you know, David Blunkett once had to hide in a cupboard, I think, at a teaching um, a union conference, uh, but you know, they can be very tough on education secretaries. They seem to be fine with her. People, in, as you wrote in your column this week, people in the other parties respected her, thought she was pretty good. Yeah, she's not in favour of grammar schools, but frankly, who is apart from Theresa May, Nick Timothy and the Daily Mail? And why you think that she's got to have an obvious target on her back? Never mind the fact, as you say, you create a big problem when they're on the back benches. She's a very rare lesbian in the cabinet. I mean, it's not like the Tory party is... She's actually the first lesbian in the cabinet full stop. Yeah, and, and, and I can only think of a, a couple of, of well, other the first open LGBT people in the in the in the Tory parliamentary party. So if you're going to talk about you know this is a diversity reshuffle looks more like the country, that does seem a sort of slightly strange thing to do. Versus you've kept in place Chris Grayling. Chris Grayling, people. And I know that Chris Grayling ran Theresa May's leadership campaign, and I know that it's nice to have someone who looks a bit like Ian Duncan Smith, but isn't Ian Duncan Smith around just to remind you that things could be worse. But I just I just don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, obviously, reshuffles in parliamentary democracies are, you know, there's always a very strong political element uh, as well as the, you know, competence, competence element, uh, which is significantly smaller. But the weird thing is, isn't with any reshuffle, you, you ought to ask yourself two questions about every appointment slash move, which is, one, does this get us something that we have that we don't already have? Damien Hines is quite impressive. I've chaired a couple of quite wonkish fringes he's been so he's on. he's new and, education secretary. Yeah. He's previously been uh, on the Education Select, Select Committee. So. Yeah, so, and, you know, he, he will, I think, be quite effective from a conservative perspective. And he's quite emollient. So I think that he, if he's sensible, will similarly try and have good relations with the rest of the sector. However, you know, he's a bit posher than Justine Greening. He's, you know, a straight white man. Other than, I guess he won't smirk after saying, I'm sorry, Prime Minister, the votes just aren't there for grammar schools. It's not clear to me how he's an upgrade on what they had. Then the second question is, does this move create a parliamentary problem for us? And the answer to that one is obviously yes. And then in those, when you've answered those first two questions, if the answer is yes, it's an upgrade, yes, it creates a parliamentary problem, then you have a discussion about whether or not the upgrade is worth it. But as it is not at all clear that this... I just don't think you can make the argument that this is an upgrade, and it definitely creates a parliamentary problem. It's just weird. Yeah, I mean, um, that's no shade to Damien Hines. He might very well turn out to be excellent, but there is no evidence so far that suggests that he's a like, cast-iron certainty to, to um, be that. Um, and in the lower right, so the Tory party stuff is interesting too. So they've appointed now, what, 11 vice chairs for the party, including... Um, Kemi Badenoch, the MP for Saffron Walden, who introduced Theresa May at um, party conference, and the new role of deputy chairman. Actually, is it a new role of deputy chairman of the party, or have they just revived it? But that's gone to James Cleverly, known as 
to me anyway is fighting cleverly and she's not because he doesn't really fight cleverly he fights quite dumbly uh, on twitter but i think people kind of like that in the, he's got a kind of clarkson vibe going on where he just sort of says things that are a bit outrageous and gets sort of muscly and stuck in with stuff what i for a while had as the intro to the politics column and i realized it was just self-indulgent and too insidery and media journalism is quite boring so i opted not to do it what i was going to do is like the difficulty of, of one of the difficulties of journalism is assessing whether or not politicians are any good or not it's quite easy to tell if someone is good at opposition because the skill set is more limited and the metrics for success tend to come up quite quickly and it, it's just easier to kick the tires of an opposition politician so like the difficulty with james cleverly right is if I were advising him, I would be going, you know, keep doing exactly what you're doing. Mm. You are playing a blinder. However, I can't work out if James Cleverly is playing a blinder. Deliberately. Deliberately. Yeah. Or I just think it's just like one of those things where I would be advising him to, you know, every time someone like, you know, on the left tweets something like, I sure wish that I could get on the housing ladder. Didn't go, well, guess where they don't have property rights. Cuba. Soviet Russia. Yeah, like, I mean, I would advise him to do that. What I don't know is whether or not he believes that all of the things that he he, he does. He's a and bit that, Museum of Communism, isn't he? Like, yeah. And, like that strange meme on the right, if only we had a Museum of Communist Atrocities, then Tory, the Tories would find it easier to yeah, win the majority. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, and this is one of the few ways in which the right doesn't play on an easier difficulty setting because i think the things i would advise you know if, if someone yeah you know, if i was advising a labor mp elected in 2017 and a tory mp elected in 2017 the things i would advise the labor mp elected in 2017 to say they liked a lot are not things that actively repulse the median voters that labor needs to win over next time because the median voter doesn't care about electoral reform or saying oh maybe the basic income is worth looking at or you know like being mildly critical of like new labor while saying i quite like sure start right you know those the, the rainer gambit yeah, if you like, will you know these you know the, these are not you know these are not things which like repulse voters yeah, whereas, whereas standing up and going anyone who says that like you know we have a problem with ethnic minorities they're the real racist after an election where you've lost ground with ethnic minorities is a great it's a great great gambit to get people to promote you it's not a good way of showing to those voters who liked you before would like some symbol that you got the message they were trying to send you that that message has been heard and understood which is why Ruth Davidson's positioning has been quite clever because she has found a way to distance herself and it helps being obviously in Holly Rudens to distance herself from the bits that are a bit whiffy mm. about the Westminster Tories without kind of having to go full museum of communism I also just think that there is and I think you and I have spoken about this before there is a problem in the kind of prisoner's dilemma thing that's happening in the Tory party at the moment which is that they all know if they want to be the next leader they've got to win the kind of tabloid primary the Daily Mail and Sun primary. So there, there is then a strong incentive to go, blue passports are brilliant. Like, I love Toby Young. Or one of, Boris Johnson was tweeting this week about, you know, the Virgin Trains versus the Daily Mail route, which is not massively on brief for him as Foreign Secretary. But that's the problem. Realistically, they shouldn't be throwing out all these cultural things. But for each individual politician, there is such a strong incentive to do it. Yeah. If you had to say one takeaway from the reshuffle, what would it be? Theresa May wants to stay and fight Forever. the next election. She is not going to go quietly. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And now I'm joined by David Eldridge, whose play Beginning is transferred from the National Theatre to the Ambassadors Theatre in London from January the 15th. Hello, David. Oh, yeah. How are you doing? Let's talk a bit about the play first in sense of setting it up. So it's it's all told in one single unbroken scene and it is two people meeting at the end of a house party in North London and about the kind of tentative steps they make towards a relationship with each other. I was interested that bits of it do come from your personal experience, right? And you found yourself dating again in your late 30s? Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Just sort of as I, as I was sort of knocking 40, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like any play in a sense in that there are bits of me in it and there are bits of my experience in it. There's lots of stuff in it that's from just from people that I've met and that I've seen and and stuff that I've made up. I think what's probably fair to say is that I'd had the idea for the play for a really long time, like well over 10 years. You know, it came from a kind of a funny story that a mate told me who'd been in a kind of a similar sort of situation to the character of Danny in the play. But it wasn't something that I had the time to write or I don't think, I think with hindsight, I wasn't really ready to write actually in my sort of late 20s or early 30s. I think I needed to have kind of lived a little bit myself and uh, to be at a different point in my own life where I think trying to do something, I suppose, second time around, the stakes feel a lot higher somehow, you know. I think that's what I felt when I watched it. This is not, you know, two young people who, if this relationship doesn't work out, then on to the next one, right? There is a real sense of, I'm going to make myself really vulnerable. And that's difficult, not just because, you know, know, biological clocks are are running out, frankly, but also that I've been hurt before and I don't want to let myself be hurt again. And that's a very different experience of, of love from an early kind of love. Totally, totally. I mean, that's totally sort of what what I had in my mind. I mean, one of the things that I think sort of interested me was that you, you sort of asked me about my own sort of experience. And, you know, after I split up with my wife and I sort of pulled myself together and thought, right, I've got to sort of get back out there and start sort of living a bit again. You know, I had very... I'd not been on my own for about 15 years. In that time, Guardian Soulmates and Tinder and match and all that had been invented and I had a very very unrealistic idea of what dating would be like probably mainly garnered from books that I read and plays that I'd seen. Did you think it was going to be more fun than it actually was? Yeah I thought that there'd be I thought that people would be like dating more than one people at once and you know that that the whole idea of relationships would be very fluid and people would have different ideas of what relationships were. But in reality, you know, it was the same as it always had been, just aided by technology in the sense that people were generally trying to meet someone that they like and and to get into some sort of settled relationship. And the other thing that I thought was, well, but the thing that had really changed was that, was that you didn't always find yourself in a situation 
that I had in my sort of early 20s, virtually the last time I was single, where you hadn't got technology, where you're just relying on going up to someone essentially and talking to them. The, the, the apps and the internet gave you kind of at le- least the first few steps that you could negotiate with someone. And I thought, actually, what if you've got two people that meet the kind of old-fashioned way in a way and how much courage that takes you? And also, you know, as you say, if you've been hurt and you're carrying around a bit of baggage or you feel that there are other things that are going on in your life that are putting more pressure on you, then the stakes are actually quite high. And actually, it takes quite a lot of courage in that situation to try and move things forward. And I, and I think that that's one of the things that's really moving always in the theatre. When you're watching characters going through something that are trying to find the courage to do or say something, yeah, you know, the stakes do feel much higher, I think, for the characters in their late 30s or early 40s. And certainly I probably needed to have experienced at least some of that to, to really want to write it and, and to understand that. So I think we've got this problem, which is, you know, I think about the small P political plays, maybe even big P political plays I saw last year. It did feel like there was an attempt to try and... I think probably actually really seeing it in terms of leave and remain is maybe the most helpful because theatre is very, like London theatre feels very culturally remain, right? It just, it, yeah, it absolutely of course it is. does. So something like St. George and the Dragon, which I saw at the National, which, you know, was lots of great people involved with that, but ultimately just did not work at all because I just don't think it could kind of grasp, you know, it, it couldn't, it didn't feel like it could reclaim patriotism for a national theatre audience, really. Whereas maybe something like, Inc. I think was fascinating that people kind of came out of that going, but this Rupert Murdoch seems to have had some some very good points to make, <laughs> and it sort that that kind of entertained me because it, it seemed to me that this, you know, this was actually the, the people were kind of desperate to have something other than like they're having their biases confirmed. That there was this real hunger for someone to intelligently interrogate, you know, liberal kind of dogma really. But can you think of anybody who is doing that currently in the theatre really well, not, successfully? Not, not really, no. I mean, my, my thing is, is not that we need lots of right-wing dramatists. It's that as dramatists, we need to remember something that Brecht said, which is that you need to give the opposition legs. And for me, that's the key, you know, or Keats's ideas about Shakespeare, you know, and negative capability that one can stand in equally in the shoes of Othello and Desdemona, you know. So for me, it's actually about moving away from writing that makes us feel comfortable in our own worldview or prejudices and beginning to sort of try and interrogate some of that a bit. And I think the starting point for that has to be how you write the characters that you ordinarily wouldn't agree with politically or have much empathy or sympathy for politically. You, you know, they've got to live as fully on the stage as the characters that you do have political sympathy with. And I think that really has to be the starting point. I think that, you know, I mean, I think the theatre is often comically peak guardian at times. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's something that irritates me just because of the part of the world that I'm from. While I am sort of probably the only guardian reader in the family, you know, I come from one of the strongest sort of leave voting areas of the country from Romford. We've embarrassingly got an MP who goes around the town with 
a bulldog in a Union Jack coat. I believe uh, that he does. That's Andrew Rosendale, right? It, and he's got is, Buster yeah. the bulldog. And yeah. Buster, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I believe Buster sometimes writes things in leaflets that were, which are the views that are too hot for Andrew Rosendale. He voices them through the uh, medium of Buster. Uh, it would not, it would not surprise me. But nevertheless, I, I am of Romford, and I, I really don't like it when where I'm from is patronised. Oh, you become a punchline. Yeah, because actually I know that it's complicated and interesting in all sorts of ways. And also I know that not all of the people in Essex or Romford are as right-wing as our MP. And there are all sorts of reasons culturally why that place is the way that it is. And so I think that you can have a choice as a dramatist to try and tell stories I mean, I think we should be doing this anyway. What are the stories that we don't hear very often? It was really great to write a play for the Royal Court called In Basildon, which was kind of about people from Basildon who would go on to vote for Brexit, you know, because you don't often see them or hear their stories in spaces like that. So what does that mean? It's, you know, I don't think we need Andrew Rosendahl's mini-me to decide to write plays, but what I do think we need is to is to maybe tell some stories that we haven't heard before necessarily. And also I think that when we write a world to to make the characters that we don't agree with as fully rounded as the characters that we do agree with. So one final question, which is if you could do one thing to make British theatre better, what would it be? You've got your magic theatre wand. Oh, I'd definitely make it a bit cheaper. <laughs> you know, I had about sort of three years between 2012, 2015 really, where... I was kind of really putting a lot more of my energy into writing telly and to get some of that stuff going. And also I felt like I needed a break from going to the theatre quite so often. As someone also that works in the theatre, I get a certain amount of free tickets and stuff. So I probably managed to go for about three years where I didn't really pay for a ticket because mm. when I, I didn't wasn't going as much and when I did go, I got a free one. And then the last couple of years or so where I've been going more again, I kind of am shocked by how much it costs, you know? And and I think, well, actually, like, if I'm sort of shocked by this, how on earth is a young writer who's spending most of their, or not just people that work in the theatre, anyone, you know, people that are in their 20s, that are in shared houses, that are on their first, second jobs, that are spending probably most of their salary on their rent, how on earth are they going to afford to go to some of these theatres, you know, to the National, to the West End, to the Almeida. You know, I think it's really important that we're all, you know, doing what we can to make our work available, not just to certain sections of society or a theatre-going audience. I think that's really important. Well, thank you very much for joining us. The play is beginning and it is on in the Ambassador's Theatre from January the 15th. Thank you. And now time for a segment we like to call... You Ask Us. Boo. Although suitably sombre, because we're talking about quite a sombre subject, which is the NHS winter crisis. So there's been lots of talk about, should there be a royal commission? Should there be what they call a hypothecated tax? So a specific tax, you know, or a portion of national insurance or income tax, which is allocated for NHS funding? You know, or do we have to just deal with the fact that 
the NHS was set up basically to kind of give people a good standard of basic healthcare, not to give them six months of incredibly expensive experimental drugs, not to give them years of palliative, well, kind of ongoing chronic care in, in, in old age. What's the answer to the NHS, Stephen? Uh, more money. I mean, so the the thing is, is right, is it? It is true to say of basically every socialised healthcare system in the world that they've got these weird policy appendices from whatever era they were created for the health needs of. The difficulty is, I I think, is when people do that, it's kind of a crutch to avoid dealing with solvable problems. Like... Obviously, it would be great from a public policy perspective if, like, we had invented the end. Well, okay, it wouldn't be great because many more people would have died due to being poor. But from a having a health service that works, it would be a great deal easier if we had invented the NHS in 2017, not in 1948. However, there's no way to really get from the NHS we have to the free at the point of use service you would ideally invent in 2017 without having some kind of user resi- yeah it is like the problem of path dependency um so i mean for example the family doctor as a kind of entry point to people for health there are many reasons why that is perhaps not the most effective way of improving patient outcomes however Anyone who sort of starts from that position, right? It's it's like when a th- there's just something a bit annoying and pointless when a think tank says like, "Ah, oh, but first we'll just pretend that there isn't this thing called the electorate, and we'll just say, oh, you know, just just reinvent it and and have the French healthcare system, or you know, or the German one, or you know, if you're a, a real crank, the American one, right? But the point is, is that okay? Although the last one of those isn't desirable, even if it's a desirable healthcare system, you you kind of can't change your legacy welfare system. That's basically the problem throughout Western Europe. It's why one of the really interesting areas of development work, actually, is the kind of like, well, so your state is building a health service. Here are all of the things which may seem like a good idea now, but trust us, will create problems. Just instead do this. One um, of the things I think has been a real problem for the NHS in the last couple of years and will become an increasingly big one is the fact that preventative stuff isn't within the ring fence budget and has therefore had a big hammer taken to it. Because what have been the brilliant, like what have been the really incredible healthcare innovations of the last, you know, 20 or 30 years? Well, stopping people smoking has been an enormous one. I mean, actually one, if you take the yes minister analysis, probably one that has had problems with the NHS because they're no longer, people are no longer paying quite so much tax on cigarettes in order to fund the NHS. But you know, there's so much, I think, you know, the diseases of the 21st century are going to be malnutrition in the form of obesity in the developed world, for example, chronic heart disease, you know, and antibiotic resistance, antibiotic resistance. Yeah. Um, lung problems from, you know, we already know that the aging population, (laughs) we already know that living in, um, you know, London, is, is incredibly bad for you because the air the air quality is, is is incredibly poor. I remember Sadiq Khan's little wavy thing. That, well, I don't know. It might as well have been a dousing rod. I don't really understand what it was, but he waved it around a lot during the mayoral election. And, and what are we not spending in, enough money on any of that kind of stuff? We could save the NHS an absolute fortune if we had had proper campaigns about healthy eating, about staying active, about putting money into free or very low cost local gyms and sports centres and, and, and really trying to get into that idea of kind of lifelong staying fit and eating healthy. And you'd get, you'd get more people out of the hospital faster because... You know, yeah, they, and more they... people would be in work because there are people who, who, who can't work because they've got chronic ongoing health conditions, which would be improved by having a better diet and more active 
lifestyle. So that's that's one of the things. I think more money, obviously, the NHS will always eat any amount of money you put into it because there's always more you could do. But it's about where you put that money in. And actually, they've made a very small upfront saving. It's in the kind of tens of millions on some of this preventative stuff, which will then have huge consequences down the road. Well, it's why ring fences don't really work. Yes, if you ring fence, say, the defence budget or the DFID budget, where... Yeah, fair enough, actually. Like, your costs don't really spiral into any other department. But there are multiple reasons than than doctors are leaving to go to other countries, many of which are to do with policy choices made by the... uh, actively made by the government. But the policy choice not to tackle the housing crisis does mean that if you are in possession of a medical degree, the attraction of staying in London and not being able to buy anything other than a small flat within commutable distance to the hospital where you work quite anti-social hours, to being able to buy a fairly large house. Yeah, and there's been a big decline of hospital accommodation yeah, as well. In, we were talking know, to someone who's got... Two, New Zealand or wherever. Yeah, exactly. Two siblings who both are doctors and both for various reasons have ended up practising ab- abroad. It is That is very difficult with... And it's the kind of other side of globalisation that we talk about importing workers in lower skilled industries to undercut us. We've got, this, we've got the problem at the other end, which is we've got workers with very high level of qualifications. It costs us a lot to train a doctor. And then we've got a problem with retaining them working in the NHS. Um, yeah, again, it's another thing where just small things, if you talk to doctors that get them like having only a single bed in hospital accommodation, you know, like the idea that they change around the way that on call works, that kind of stuff. You're sort of slowly just pissing off a group of people who, who have got a lot of individual power to go, <laughs> yeah, bye, see you later. Um, well, that's quite depressing. Thanks for that, Stephen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our producer also does a newsletter called No Complaints, which you can find at tinyletter.com forward slash no complaints. No complaints.